0: There are few things in the world more special to see than a Christian baptism. It is a time of rejoicing. And uh, it was meant always to be such a vivid visual of gospel truth. That we see in the ordinances in baptism and the Lord's Supper. We see very vivid portrayals of what we find in words describing the gospel in the New Testament. The Lord has given us, those who are very visual in nature as human beings, has given us these instructors to uh, keep our minds fixed on what the gospel is all about. Death, burial, and resurrection with Christ. To be united to Christ, to be joined with Christ. And uh, we've, we've seen that in Romans 6. There we get the words, and what we just saw was a real-life example of the truth described in Romans chapter 6. So these aren't just heady, abstract, theological things. They are real-life, really experienced truths of God. So if you would, turn with me in your Bibles at this point to this mountain peak of Romans, Romans chapter 6. And today we are in verses 12 to 17. Romans 8, 12 to 17. And I'll go ahead and give you the title for the sermon this morning. It is Led by the Spirit. Very simple. in fact, we get the words, uh, I get the words for the title from the text itself. We find these words in verse 14, Led by the Spirit. And it is the heart of the passage. Uh, you'll see as, you come, as we come to that verse that it defines what precedes it and it defines what comes after it. And so it really is the, the, the hinge of the passage and I think therefore the, uh, what should be the main idea of the text. And by the way, that's what the title is meant to do. Title of the sermon is meant to get at the main idea of the text uh, here uh, in these verses. So led by the Spirit. What does it mean to be spiritual? This is an idea that gets tossed around quite a bit, pretty freely, in our culture. And you still hear this, I think, often, uh, this language of, I am spiritual, but not religious. And probably if you had a conversation with 10 people in your neighborhood, you just went around and you maybe had dinner with 10 different families. You probably would hear that sort of thing uh, pretty frequently. I'm, I'm a spiritual person. I've heard it quite a bit in different locations from different age groups of people. Spiritual, but not religious. But what does it look like to live a spiritual life? What does it really look like to be Spiritual. Well, Paul answers that question for us in Romans chapter eight, verses 12 to 17. Here in this passage, he tells us what it means and what it looks looks like to be spiritual. And of course, it should be no surprise to us that being spiritual has to do with the Holy Spirit, right? Just makes sense. Being spiritual has to do with the Holy Spirit. And by the way, Generally, not entirely, but generally, when you hear people talk about being spiritual, typically they are, they are basing that sort of New Age kind of notion on a long history of a Christian heritage, a long Christian heritage that has sort of held up Western civilization. So when they are referring to being spiritual Uh, The roots of that notion go back to the Christian gospel. But it's been twisted and perverted with some sort of general New Age Eastern mix of spirituality. But here we have the truth that to be spiritual has to do with the Holy Spirit. Being in the Spirit, the Spirit being in us... Living or walking in accordance with the Spirit rather than living or walking in accordance with the flesh. Every person is either in the flesh or in the Spirit. And that's what we talked about last week. There is no kind of gray. We recognize that there is much gray in life, right? I mean, you're going to have a hard time navigating life on a practical level if you're just black and white. It's not going to work. There is nuance built into life by its very nature. There is gray in many areas of life. I'll tell you one area there there is a lot of gray that's difficult is in disciplining children. Trying to work that out on the specific level. Lots of gray to be dealt with there. But this is a black and white truth. Every person is either in the Spirit or in the flesh. It is either black in the flesh, darkness, or it is white in the Spirit, light. So far in Romans chapter 8, we've seen that we receive the Spirit through Christ. Through the events of Easter. And we had Romans 8, uh, verse 1, fall on Easter, which was wonderfully providential. But it is through the events of Easter that we receive the Spirit through Christ. God condemned sin in the flesh through Christ's incarnation and death. Christ took on flesh, that's what we celebrate at Christmas. So that he could die in that flesh as a sin offering on behalf of human beings. That's what we celebrate at Easter. God condemning sin in the flesh through Christ's incarnation and death. But Christ did not stay dead. He was then raised and exalted and he has poured out the spirit on his people. By the way, that's the linkage. Uh, The resurrection of Christ is not just a historical thing that we look back to and it happened and we say, okay, there it is. It is historical. He rose bodily and literally, but the linkage between the resurrection of Christ and our own experience in this world in life is the Holy Spirit, whom Christ raised and exalted poured out on his people. That's what we read about at Pentecost, and we see those various narratives in Acts with that dramatic coming of the Spirit. But we who are Christians individually received the Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ at our conversion. And Paul referred to this, it was a, a, a little note. We, we, we maybe just kind of zipped over it, but it was a little note way back in chapter 5, verse 5, where Paul speaks to this notion of us receiving the Holy Spirit. Chapter 5, verse 5, it says this, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Through the Holy Spirit given to each of us who is a Christian. If one does not have the Spirit, then he or she is not a Christian. To be a Christian equals to have the Spirit. To have the Spirit equals being a Christian. And that's Paul's point in chapter 8, verse 9, which we looked at last week. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. And here it is. Here's the language. If, if, if. In fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. There are lots of ways that we, in our culture, in our very watered down, very milky evangelical subculture, many ways that we refer to being a Christian. But let me be clear, because Paul here is clear Being a Christian means you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you. So let me go back to this idea of spirituality. This means that any so-called spirituality apart from the Holy Spirit is not spirituality at all. In fact, it is just of the flesh. Uh, any, any kind of spirituality that makes a person feel as though they're deep. They're deep. They're a deep thinker. Or, or maybe they're, they're someone who is just kind of a little unique, a little different than those around them. They, they have these sorts of thoughts. They, they think philosophically or whatever. It's just flesh. Another flavor, another version of flesh. It's not spirituality at all. We know the flesh is also under the oversight of that evil spirit himself, Satan. So there is a sense in which this kind of so-called spirituality, overseen by demons, is connected very much to the day-in, day-out workings of the flesh. Characterized by sin and death. Rebellion against God and separation from God. God. Any so called spirituality that is not governed by the Holy Spirit of God is just rebellion and separation from the living God. But what does it look like in practice to be in the Spirit? What does it really look like in the experience of a Christian to be a spiritual person? To be, as Paul says in our passage for today, led by the Spirit. Well, before we even come to our verses for today, we've already gotten a few answers to that question in Romans 8. So we've seen that it means to carry out God's law from the heart. We got that in verse 4. That's what it means to be spiritual. That's what it means to be led by the Spirit. We also saw that it means to hope in future resurrection, That's what we got in verses 10 and 11. To be spiritual, to be in the spirit, to have the spirit, to be a Christian is to have hope in future resurrection. But today, we get a little more detail about the spiritual life. And it turns out that it's actually quite simple. You know... Things like something big, like the Christian life, is is in some ways quite complex, right? I mean, you can go and get a book. I remember uh, when I was in seminary. I've mentioned this book before, but I mentioned uh, John Frame's great book, John Frame's "The Doctrine of the Christian Life," and it was over a thousand pages. It was incredible. And he dealt with all sorts of uh, competing worldviews to the Christian system of thought. And he deals with uh, what it means practically speaking day in and day out to live the Christian life. He went through and expounded on the Ten Commandments page after page after page. God's moral law, the basis for God's will in human living. It was a great book. And it does give the impression that there really is no way to live the Christian life, unless you've got a lot of extra time on your hands to read large tomes like that. Otherwise, you are just not going to quite get it. But thankfully, Paul gives us just here a few verses which simplify the Christian life for us or help us to understand what it is to be led by the Spirit, what it looks like in practice in daily life Living, Paul boils it down to just two big ideas, just two, two things to walk away with that are so fundamental to understanding what it is to be led by the Spirit. As Paul describes it here, being led by the Spirit involves these two fundamental and all-encompassing things. And you'll find them up here on the screen. Here they are. Very basic, but this is the Christian life in a nutshell. Led by the Spirit, two things. First, sin killing. And second, sonship. Anything and everything under the Christian life can really fit under these two great banners. This is what it looks like to be led by the Spirit. So if you would go ahead and stand with me. For the reading of God's word. Passages like this are so great too. For just calling us to ask the question. Am I really a Christian? Am I really a Christian? Passages like this are so essential. So we're going to read all of Romans 8 up to verse Seventeen, so that you can follow Paul's logic. This is God's word. It is perfect and profitable for his people, for us. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh... to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That is the most amazing things we could ever hear right here. Verses 12 to 17. So then brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God, You can go ahead and be seated. A lot of glorious truths packed into those 17 verses. Let's pray and ask that the Lord would help us to understand what's here in verses 12 to 17. Father, as I was reminded yesterday in a Paul Washer sermon, you are glorified through human weakness. You are seen as mighty, great, the basis for anything we could ever do through our weakness. Father, there is much weakness in here this morning, Lord, among us. Weakness in preaching, weakness in hearing, weakness in focusing. Father, we need you. We need you. Right now. We need you for clarity. We need you for focus. We need you to move in us. Because apart from that. Father we are just a bag of bones. We have nothing. Dead bones. Like in Ezekiel. We need you to breathe on us. Father. We need you to move among us and within us. If things are to happen here today of eternal consequence. And so Father we ask now. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Son of the living God. That you would work in hearts today. And that your scripture would do its work among us. Thank you. For giving us these truths, Lord, that our ears, by your grace, that our ears would be under the sound of these truths today. What a blessing. What a a wonderful thing to to give you thanks for, God, that we would actually be in such a place by your providence this day. That we would hear these words read from Romans chapter 8. God, thank you for bringing us to this moment, and may it not be in vain, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing we're going to look at this morning, the first aspect, fundamental, overarching aspect of this being led by the spirit life, which is the Christian life, is sin killing, sin killing. Look at verses 12 to 13 again with me. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Here, Paul draws a conclusion from the previous passage. Because you are no longer in the flesh... But in the spirit, now you owe the flesh nothing. Nothing. Before you owed the flesh everything. Owned by the flesh, governed by the flesh, defined, controlled by the flesh. Now you owe the flesh nothing. No obligation, no indebtedness, no enslavement. You are free. Free, that is, to live in the Spirit. This is our new condition. Paul describes it. He describes it as our new condition. It is our new ability and our new obligation. We now can. What We can live unto God. Bear fruit for God. Another way to say this is that we've moved... From the road of death to the road of life. Paul paints a picture of two roads with two very different destinations. The road of living according to the flesh has one destination. By the way, there are no side roads. There are no little paths Little dirt paths or, 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 or little gravel roads that lead off of this path. It, is, it has big concrete walls reaching to the heavens on both sides and it ends in one place. Death. The road of living according to the flesh leads to that one destination. And the road of living according to the spirit leads to life. This is the picture that Paul has painted us. But how does Paul describe this road of the Spirit that leads to life? The road that every Christian is on. That is the road, that's the narrow path, the narrow road from the Sermon on the Mount with the narrow gate. Difficult is the way. That's the way that every Christian is on. How does Paul describe it? Well, he will describe it generally in verse 14 as being led by the Spirit. But how does he describe it here in specific terms? Answer, this is a road characterized by sin killing. Sin killing. Verse 13, by the Spirit putting to death the deeds of the body. Do you see How much of a defining characteristic that is of the Christian life. Just pause. Take note. Just take note. This is quintessential. This is at the core of the Christian life. Sin killing. The Christian life is a life of sin killing. Now let me say this. I think given some recent events, this must be said. This is not killing sinners. This is not killing sinners. Either other sinners or yourself. It's not what this is talking about. This is rather killing sin within one self. Killing that indwelling sin in the life of a Christian that is there present. Evil is present, Paul says at the end of Romans 7. This is a battle with indwelling sin. This is the classic idea of the mortification of sin, written about so extensively by the Puritan John Owen. And others have written on this mortification. That's a very fancy word. That's one we do not use any longer, really. But it is a way of describing what we have here in Paul's epistle in chapter 8, verse 13. Sin-killing, mortification of sin. Paul describes this sin-killing work in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, which was our call to worship. This is what he says. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality. Notice, he lists that first. In our hyper-sexualized culture, much like the culture of first century, you see these paintings in Pompeii, for example, Roman culture was saturated with perverse sexuality. Does that sound familiar? We're not living in some kind of unique age. This is not some, oh man, the world has really devolved. It's always been nasty. The world has always been sin-saturated. What we find here listed first is sexual immorality. It just reminds us how much the New Testament has to say about sexual immorality as being emblematic of living in the flesh. Emblematic. Of living in the flesh. I'll go on. Sexual immorality. Impurity. Passion. Evil desire. And covetousness. Which is idolatry. This gives us a little sense for what we're targeting. You know when. You go out hunting. I don't really hunt. But I think of Walt when I think of hunting. Uh, Walt Sellers one of our elders. He goes to uh, places and hunts elk. And when you go out hunting, you have something you are aiming at, or it's not going to be much of a hunt. If you're going to get something, you got to aim at it. you got to know what you're looking for, and then you've got to shoot it down. That's exactly what we find here. Lots of little targets within us, targets of indwelling sin. This is what we are targeting And Jesus vividly describes how radical this work is in Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 to 30. This is not just, oh yeah, just casual, kind of trying to kind of put some sin aside. No, listen to how Jesus describes the sin killing that characterizes the Christian life. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So what is Jesus doing here? Should all of us be walking around next Sunday with missing eyes and hands? No! Don't do that. Jesus is using hyperbole to show how radical this activity must be. He's using this rhetorical device of hyperbole to simply illustrate this is serious. And this is intense. And this is radical. And this means doing intentional things that may seem to others as utterly insane. This is how serious it is to live the Christian life. We're not talking about life as a cruise to the Bahamas. We're talking about this kind of life. Christian life is thoroughly uncomfortable. Thoroughly uncomfortable. If your Christian life is thoroughly comfortable, it is not the Christian life that you are living. This is not comfortable. What Jesus is describing And what Paul is describing in Romans 8, 13. So we need to take note. This is radical and active work. We go to great lengths. And we are the ones doing it. Notice that. We are the ones doing it. This is active. Paul says, you, you put to death the deeds of the body. Uh, Let me say this, our sanctification is not passive. There is an idea, it's a slogan out there that's just wrong. It's just false. It's kind of silly. And it goes like this. Let go and let God. What in the world does that even mean? What in the world do these things even mean? They sound squishy. They sound nice and they look good on a coffee mug, but there is utterly silliness. Let go and let God. You tell me how Romans eight thirteen could in any way be described as letting go. This is not letting go of anything. We must actively engage our flesh to put it to death. We're holding tight. We're not letting go. Listen to the way D. Martin Lloyd-Jones describes it. We must pull it out, look at it, denounce it, hate it for what it is. Then you have really dealt with it. Christian life is not passive. And maybe your reformed theology has has somehow been twisted in your mind to make you think that you're just sort of sitting there waiting on God to sort of sovereignly do things in your life. And you're just sort of floating along waiting for God to act. That's not the Christian life. So listen to these words. You go and kill sin, Christian. That's what we must do. But there is another pit that we can fall into. Yes, we can fail to see how active this is on our part, which was what I was just attacking a moment ago. But on the other hand, We can skip over Paul's central words. These are so significant, so central. By the Spirit. So there's no place in in the Christian life for passivity. There's no place in the Christian life for let go and let God, whatever it is that might mean. But at the same time, there is no place in the Christian life for self-reliance. And that is why Paul says here that it is by the Spirit. It is only by the Spirit living within us that we can put sin to death. That's the only way it's going to happen. Let me say this to you, disciplined Christian. You're not putting sin to death when you're relying on yourself. You're doing something else. You're doing something else. Let me say that again. You're not putting sin to death when you are relying on yourself. You might be able to put some things in place. You might be able to organize life in some very specific ways. But what you are not doing is putting sin to death. John Stott says this, For only he can give us the desire, determination, and discipline to reject evil. Only the Spirit can give us that. Let me tell you what happens in the life of a disciplined person who's not doing it in the Spirit. Pride. Pride. You get your schedule right. You get your Bible reading right. You get your, uh, your, your home in order. Man, you're just pulling up those bootstraps. And you know what you do in the flesh? You look over A Joe or Sally who doesn't have it together, their life's a mess. Are they reading their Bible every day? Probably not. And you know what you say? You say, I am. I am. That's what happens when discipline goes into gear apart from the spirit. Is pride comes in and guess what? That's worse than whatever else it is you put aside. That's worse than whatever else it is you put aside. Because pride is like a cancer of the soul. It destroys all your works. It destroys everything. And it debases love. It prevents you from loving God humbly and meekly. It prevents us from graciously and mercifully loving our neighbor. We must rely on the Spirit or it is just flesh. Remember, we are talking about a life led by the Spirit. That's the whole big idea here. Under His authority and control, under His guidance and shepherding. We're talking about daily and hourly dependence on the Spirit of God, on His empowerment. And by the way, He provides it. Isn't that amazing to think? When we're tired, when we're overcome with our weakness, isn't it amazing to think that in that moment, we can approach God, we can approach the throne of mercy, we can approach the throne of grace, and that the Holy Spirit, who is a real person, helps us in that moment. Always. Not in the way we think he should all the time, but he always helps us. He's always present. This is daily and hourly dependence on his empowerment. This is constant prayer for his help and a mind directed to his inspired word. You know, it's interesting. We get a little insight into what Paul is talking about by examining the context of Colossians 3 verse 5. Remember what Colossians 3 verse 5 says. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Well, when you take that verse... Which parallels our passage for today. When you take that verse in context, what you find are two very essential aspects of this putting sin to death with the Spirit kind of life. So look before Colossians 3, 5 and verse 2. If you have your Bible there, you can quickly flip over. You can see Colossians 3, 5 in its context. Verse 2 says this. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. You know, I remember one night, um, I was just, I just felt very kind of dry spiritually. And my wife and I were kind of getting into bed and we, we put on um, the, the ESV app. We were going to just listen to uh, an epistle. It's kind of my go-to, the, the Psalms and the epistles, just immediately, Boom. It just pop with glorious truths. And um, we we turned on 1 uh, Thessalonians. And I just remember here that it was like fireworks just went off in my heart. My heart was dry and cold, and I was tired and grumpy. And it was like, all of a sudden, I started hearing those things from First Thessalonians. It was like I was just like electrified. It was like fireworks just went off in my soul. And that's because immediately my mind, which was so focused on what was going on right here in this dirt of life, was raised up to the glories of heaven. And that's what we read here in Colossians 3 verse 2. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. We need our minds constantly geared back to heavenly realities. And then afterwards, Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Well, there's your instructions, Christian. There you go. That's what it looks like to be led by the Spirit in killing sin. You see how Colossians 3 verse 5, in the context of Colossians 3 verse 2 and 3 verse 16, right there together helps us understand what's going on in the life of a Christian as he or she kills sin. Thinking on the things of the Spirit as we bathe our minds on his Christ-centered word. And let me say this, if that's not what we're doing, we're going to find ourselves in a world of trouble. That is the Christian life. That's what we're helping each other do as, as well, by the way. That's, that's what communal living is about. That's what living in community and gospel community is about. And that's why all this language in verse 16. What does it say? Teaching and admonishing one another. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. This is a one another ring that helps each of us do what it is that Paul is describing Let me give a a couple of final implications for us before we move on to our next point. First, this is one of the key ways you can know whether or not you're a Christian. In fact, I mentioned this some time ago. uh, John Piper in one of his Ask Pastor Johns, this was a while ago, I don't even remember the date, but in one of his Ask Pastor John episodes, he dealt with assurance of salvation and he went here. He went to Romans 8 verse 13. This is one of the ways that you can know whether or not you're a Christian right now. One who is in or led by the Spirit, one who is a believer, ask yourself this question. Am I killing sin? If the answer is no, you're not a Christian. It's that simple. If the answer is yes, then that is showing you the power of the Spirit in you, the only one by whom we could do that. We would have no interest in killing sin if it were not for the Spirit. We're not talking about sinlessness, but sin killing. Let me say that again. Being a Christian is not about sinlessness. It is about sin killing. On any given day in your Christian life, there will not be sinlessness, but there must be much sin killing daily. Christ says, Carry the cross daily. Second implication, all efforts at reform in home, in church, and in society must be focused here for each of us. So you get all riled up for social action. You get all riled up about some calls and you spend endless hours on the internet listening to your favorite talking head and you get all sort of out of sorts, ask yourself this question. Am I as passionate about killing my own sin as I am about this cause? This thing that gets me all flustered. This should be your greatest passion as a Christian. This is God's greatest passion for you as a Christian, is that you kill your sin. And that's not to say that we don't get involved in all kinds of causes, Christians have been doing that for 2,000 years. Much of the wonderful institutions that end in human flourishing in Western civilization owe owe their very existence to Christianity. Think of hospitals and universities and all sorts of other institutions. All kinds of reform. Abolition of the slave trade. The fight now against human trafficking and other sorts of things. These are wonderful. The fight for the dignity of the life of the unborn child. But all I'm saying here is that our great efforts at reform on the outside must be matched by great efforts of reform in our own hearts as we fight indwelling sin. At any given moment, that's the thing you should be most passionate about. In the irascible part of your soul, the the medieval theologian Thomas Aquinas would talk about that irascible, that kind of of anger, not, not always in a bad way, but that kind of rise up against and fightness in the soul. Let that be focused toward killing sin above everything else. But there's another fundamental aspect to this spirit-led life, and it is sonship. So first we've seen sin killing, and now we come to sonship. Look at verses 14 to 17 with me. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. These are some of the most wonderful, encouraging Reassuring, heart-lifting words in the Bible. So if your heart's not lifted, it's kind of down in the dumps. These words, I pray, are lifting you up. Some of the most wonderful words we could read. And by wonderful, I mean wonderful in their effect in us, but wonderful in the sense that they inspire great awe in us as we come to them. So far... We've been told that to be led by the Spirit is to be killing sin. And now we are told that to be led by the Spirit is to be and function as God's very own children. We are children of God. The children of God. And why do you think Paul just uses sons? Why not sons and daughters? You know, some translations will just go in and they'll put sons and daughters. But it just says sons. Why not sons and daughters? Well, the reason some translations do that is because this is partially a cultural convention. This is the representative he. So we find that and that's the reason why men and women will sometimes be translated in these places or sons and daughters and and so forth. But also, I think there's a theological reason why we just find sons. The sonship of the Christian flows through union with the Son. And so you have even embedded in the use of language a relation to, back to, the Son. That is why Paul ends by saying that we are fellow heirs with Christ. Our sonship, our status and experience as adopted sons and daughters of God comes only through union with the one unique son. So made sons through the son. Made sons through the son. So all human beings do not relate to God as his children. Just let me put that out there. You will often hear uh, I can remember years ago hearing a uh, then-presidential candidate, John Kerry, uh, saying that in a debate, you know, we are all God's children. Uh, this is not true. We are not all God's children. This is a unique right given to us through Christ. John chapter 1, verse 12. It is a right, it is a privilege It is a gift to be God's child. We're not all in this world God's children. In fact, as Ephesians chapter 2 verses 2 to 3 says, human beings are sons of disobedience and children of wrath. That's, That's not the same thing. It's not the same to say we are children of God and we are sons of disobedience and children of wrath. We are either sons of disobedience and children of wrath Or, as we find here, sons of God, children of God, heirs of God. Once again, it is an either or. And there are five things that this sonship entails that we need to notice here. I started out with three, but ended up having to go with five. So I'm going to give all of these to you, and you can write them down. This is where we'll finish up this morning. Five things that this sonship entails just as we see it unfolded for us here in these verses. The first one I'll go through very quickly, and it is obedience. You know, it's, it's interesting. When you hear Christians talk about us being children of God, oftentimes this is skipped over. And it's kind of funny. Because isn't that the first thing you think of, really, when you think of children and their parents? If you're a parent, it probably is. Because you fight so hard to teach them obedience. This is key. This is essential. This is kind of the first thing you think of when your little child begins to crawl and begins to walk. Immediately, you realize that one of the most fundamental aspects of this relationship is obedience. Authority and obedience. And that's what we find when we go to the Bible and we see counsel from the Scriptures to parents. This is an essential part of that relationship. But oftentimes, we go to the the intimate stuff... When we see that we're children of God and we just kind of skip right on over this part, obedience. But obedience is entailed in everything we've just talked about. All of this sin killing, being led by the spirit of God is to be under submission to God's word as we saw last week. And it is to be carried along by God. It is to be under his authority, obedient to him. So I'm not going to say anything more about that. But that's a first aspect of this that you just can't miss. You can't go to the other stuff without getting this down. Second, adoption. Adoption. When we were in the flesh, we lived in sin with an innate fear of death and God's judgment. Paul will say at the end of Romans 1 that that the, the, the sinner knows that he's deserving of judgment. In his, own, in his heart, he knows that. He knows that sin leads to death, but he does it anyway. He suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. And that is exactly what is going on here with this fear. There is embedded in the heart of every sinner a fear of death, a fear of judgment. But now, oh, let me say this. this isn't this what we saw at the beginning with Adam and Eve? What did Adam and Eve do right after they sinned? Man, they ran and hid. They ran and hid from God. They ran and hid in the trees. They needed to cover themselves. They needed to get away from this great God. One that they were, that they used to be drawn to and were with and and had this relationship, not of fear. Now, it is a relationship based on terror, that kind of fear. But now, in the spirit, Slavery to sin has been broken and freedom has replaced fear through our adoption as God's children. The language of adoption is very important because only Christ is God's unique son. We are adopted children of God. It's important for us to remember that and not to just go straight to children of God. We are the adopted children of God because Christ... As God's one unique son, through him we have been brought in. But, this is the glory of this passage. And maybe this is something that you have not really taken note of. Yes, there is only one unique son of the Father, and that is Christ. But, as in Roman adoption, and as we see adoption practiced today, the adopted child receives full privileges and status along with the natural born children. The distinction is, as it were, in practice, erased. When you adopt a child, they are really and fully your child. Not a second class child within, not a second class citizen within the home. Fully and totally your child. That's the way it was in Roman society and we see that being practiced today. Oh man, do you know what that means? This is so glorious. The adopted child receives these privileges and these and this status such that Christ calls us his brothers. Christ is called our brother the living Lord of glory, the one who crushed the head of the devil, our ancient foe, the one who rules sovereign over heaven and earth, everything above the earth, on the earth, and under the earth, the King of kings and the Lord of lords is our brother. If that doesn't just blow your mind, cause all your hair to stand up, and I don't know what would. We share in the privilege and status of Christ. In glory, we will be exalted to reign with Christ. Uh, how, how in the world do we spend forever worshiping Christ and yet reigning alongside of Christ? These are mysteries that we just cannot fully understand. But these are truths we must know as Christians. That is what awaits us sharing Christ's glory. Third, intimacy. So we've seen obedience, we've seen adoption. Now we see Intimacy. The spirit of adoption is also the spirit who cries out within us. It is by the spirit that we relate to God. No spirit, no relationship, right? No spirit, no relationship with God. No Christ, no spirit, no relationship with God. Here Paul says that the spirit is the one by whom we cry, Abba. Father and in Galatians chapter four verse six Paul ascribes this work to the Spirit Himself. Paul says this: God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, "Abba, Father." So who does the crying? Is it I myself who is crying out to God, or is it the Spirit? Once again, this is difficult to understand. We don't get this. Uh, we don't get this the contours of this laid out for us. What we do know is that there is no way in which we in our own spirits can cry out to God as Abba and relate to Him truly from the heart as He is our Father and relate to Him that way and experience Him that way apart from the work of the Spirit carrying along our cries. There's just no way to understand all of that. But this is what is happening this is spirit-enacted and spirit-guided relationship with the living God. That's what it is to be a Christian. And it creates a relationship of deep intimacy. And that intimacy is seen through this word Abba. It's an Aramaic word. And we talked about this when we, went to the, when we were in the Lord's Prayer several years ago in, in uh, the Sermon on the Mount. But this word Abba... This was the language of Jesus when he prayed to the Father. The disciples would hear Jesus praying to the Father. Jesus prayed to the Father often for long periods of time. And they would hear Jesus speak to the God of Israel in ways they had never heard before. They had never heard a Pharisee say those words. They had never heard a Sadducee pray like that out in the middle of the street so that everyone can see him. Not Abba, but they heard Jesus of Nazareth, their rabbi, their lord, their master, praying Abba, Father. This was and is language of deep intimacy with God. It is like coming to God as daddy or dear father. This is the kind of approach that we have with our Father. And it is only for those who are united to Christ. It is only in the Son who says Abba that we then, united to Him, in Him, Christ alone can pray by His Spirit, given to us the same Abba as His brothers. Fourth, we see assurance as we come to the end here. So we've looked at obedience, adoption, intimacy, and now we see Assurance. Notice here that it is in the very act of the spirits crying out within us that we are assured. It is the spirit who creates a filial bond between us and God. We experience internally this relational connection with God as the spirit carries us. The spirit himself carries us along to God in prayer. Let me tell you what this tells us about prayer it tells us how crucial prayer is for assurance of salvation. So if your prayer life is just kind of non-existent, but if you're a Christian, it won't be non-existent. If it's non-existent, you're, you're probably not a Christian, or you're, 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 it's, it's really not a, non-existent. But if your prayer life seems dry and, and, and doesn't seem like something that's happening very often with much intensity or earnestness, then of course you're going to be lacking in assurance of salvation. Right? Just think about it. Who is it that testifies within us that we are the children of God, that we're true Christians? Who is it that, that, uh, that does this work of making us certain that we are believers? It's the Spirit. And in what capacity does he do this? Or in what activity does he do this? As we cry out to God as Abba. And so a life that is filled with prayer... Carried along by this spirit in this way is going to be a life that is constantly being fueled by assurance. Do you see that relationship between prayer and assurance of salvation? Finally, as we close this morning, number five, this sonship involves being heirs. In this short space, Paul has described so much about our sonship, but of course, he has to take us to the end our inheritance. And what is our inheritance? Kingdom? Check. New heaven? And new earth? Check. Everlasting life? No more tears? No more pain? No more death? Check, check, check. Yes, all of these are true. But Paul's language, that's not where Paul goes. Paul's language here must be read very carefully carefully. He says we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. The language of heirs of God tells us that God himself is our inheritance. Imagine that God is what we're waiting to inherit fully in our bodies, in a new heaven and new earth with God. God himself is the inheritance. You think of a a child, who is sort of, uh, and you, you hope that this is not happening, just waiting for the inheritance. Because you're waiting for the inheritance, you're waiting for the death of your parent. That's pretty sick. But you think about a child reflecting on their future inheritance. Whatever that thing might be here, that thing is not a thing. It's a person, it's God. God himself is our portion. He is our prize. He is our inheritance. Psalm 73, 25 to 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's what Paul's talking about. John 17, 24. Father, this is Jesus praying. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Guess what? We're going to be with Christ We're going to see his glory. And listen to what John says in 1 John 3, 2. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Our inheritance is God himself. And we will be glorified with Christ, our brother. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. But notice this as we close. Paul ends on a sobering note. He ends with an if, a condition, a reminder of what the authentic Christian life involves. Suffering. Heirs of Christ are those who suffer with him. Let me say it this way. You do not go to glory without suffering. Or, more pointedly, you do not get the crown without the cross. What we read in Philippians 2 of Christ is the pattern for all Christians. We descend in order that we might ascend. And it's not that we ascend because we descended as though we merit ascending because we descended. It's not I descended and so God's going to reward me with ascending. It's all grace. It's all Christ. But the path to glory is the path of the cross. And in context, this must involve the mortification of sin we just talked about. But in the context of the larger New Testament, it must also involve persecution. Of various kinds, Christians face persecution for our faith in Christ. The only road to the crown is by way of the cross. This is Christianity. This is the Christian life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holy word. We ask that you would seal it in our hearts as we leave here today. We pray that you would use it to encourage us as Christians, uh, reminding us, Lord, that though we are not sinless, we see the work of your spirit in our sin killing, and we give you praise. And though we do not have perfect intimacy with you in this life, we nonetheless experience that Abba relationship that comes only. By your spirit. We thank you for reminding us of these two fundamental aspects of the Christian life, of what it means to be in the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit. Father, as we come now to the Lord's Supper, we are, our eyes are just fixed on Jesus, what he accomplished at the cross, what his blood does for us, and covering us of our sins and giving us that covenant relationship with you that is in his blood. We thank you, Father. That through the blood of Christ you have passed over our sins. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.